Frank because Frank Mazapel, our engineer, is like my age and Les's age, unlike Dr. Talton, who's yeah. who's the kid on the block here. <laughs> yeah. In the old days, wasn't it eyes, ears, nose, and throat? Yeah. It was. Um initially, in fact, the first board certification was for the American Academy of Ear Nose Eye, Ear, Nose, and Throat. And what happened is the amount of literature and learning and disease processes became so great that actually those two boards had a split off and one became the American Academy of Ophthalmology and the other one became the American Academy of Otolaryngology head and neck surgery. And that was in the 1940s, in fact. Wow. So that's the less popular way to say what you do, otolaryngology. Everyone else likes to say ENT, so they don't have to remember the big one. I say boogers and wax. There you and go. That, and, and that's and the name that, of our show this me. morning, Boogers and Snot mm -hmm. and All That's mm -hmm. Not, a uh, conversation with Dr. Leslie Burgash and a shout out to Dr. Burgash's daughter, Alana. Alana, in Hollywood, California, who got up early this morning to listen to our show live. Sweet. Thanks for doing that, babe. I appreciate that. Aww. Aww. I want to say hi to my dad and Jack. Mm -hmm in the engine room. Hi guys. I don't think anybody's listening on my, you know, <laughs> we could talk about it later if you want, <laughs> you know, I'll go home. Hey, did you listen to my show? Wait, you have a show. <laughs> oh, well, you know, people is, are listening in my office. So it's, uh, cool. that, it's cool. And that's why we have you here. We, we want people to listen. You know, ENT has kind of been described as looking into deep, dark holes with really small lights. Tell us, Les, why'd you, why'd you become an otolaryngologist? It was very interesting. I was deciding what I wanted to do with my life professionally. And I felt, how could I make an impact to my patients and not just begging them to take their medications? And um, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if you could in some way interact with them in terms of their senses? Because with their senses, they interact with their environment. And ear, nose, and throat came because of the senses that are involved. And also because it was a great mix of medicine, surgery, pediatrics, radiology, big surgery, small surgery. And it was just a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing for me. And, and I remember I did my one week uh, rotation in ENT when I was a fourth year medical student. And the first day I went down, and back in those days, they did uh, an operation called a stapedectomy under local, where they removed the smallest bone in the body called the stapes under local. And I saw one of my professors who actually did a stapedectomy under local, took a half an hour, and the lady went from not being able to hear to being able to hear. And I thought that that was the most remarkable thing and from there that's when i said i ha i have to do this yeah how cool is that and for our listening audience the stapes is a small bone in the ear behind the eardrum you can't look in and see it but you can see the eardrum comes over it and it's right behind that eardrum so i just wanted you guys to know right smallest bone in the body right so you get to be a doctor medical doctor and a surgeon yes so you have the best of both worlds. I think so. Can you tell us about some of the procedures and conditions that you treat in your office? Certainly. Uh, over the years, I've kind of changed my practice in terms of what I've become interested in. And as I get older and my neck doesn't cooperate with me as well, 
to do big head and neck surgery cases. Uh, and being down here with all the allergies and sinus problems, I've become very interested in the treatment of sinus disease, both medically and surgically, uh, in terms of allergies, in terms of uh, surgical treatment of sinuses. Uh, over the last six to seven years, there's been an increase in a procedure called balloon sinuplasty that we can do in the office with patients being medicated with some pain medication uh, and maybe some Xanax or Valium and numb up the patient's nose. And we can actually do this procedure in about an hour and 15 minutes. And there has been incredible, really good success stories regarding this procedure. You have to pick the appropriate patient. You have to pick the appropriate disease process. Uh, and I've had excellent, excellent results with the balloon sinuplasty. So what model. exactly is it? It is, there are several different companies that make these balloons. We, we use Intellis balloons. Shout out to my friend Jordan. Um, and we actually can go up into the sinus, very similar to uh, coronary, coronary balloons. And we microfracture the natural opening or ostea of the sinuses. That allows air to flow into the sinuses because they've been blocked. And once you get air into the sinuses, it decreases inflammation and decreases the inflammatory response with congestion, pressure, post-nasal drainage, decreased infections, those kinds of things. Painful? I don't think it's painful. I think it's more pressure. There are some patients who say it didn't bother them at all. And there are some patients, I always ask my patients on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the worst, how bad it is. I think my worst patient has been maybe a six. So, but really not, not bad at all. They really take very little pain medication afterwards, even if they need it. Recovery time? Typically, and this is much different than standard sinus surgery, where I have to take people to outpatient surgery centers, put them to sleep and do the surgery. But if I did, um, it's like I did a patient this morning, she should be back doing her usual activities late Friday, early Saturday, versus taking a whole week off from work and, and, and those kinds of things that go along with general anesthesia. So on the topic of sinus problems that require a balloon sinoplasty. These are people that get frequent sinusitis, right? Correct. And uh, and for sure, that's something that the family doctor is familiar with because we all have the patients that call us pretty much on a regular basis, two, three, four times a year saying, here I am with my standard sinus infection. I know exactly what it is and I need antibiotics. I think 10% of all office visits are related to sinus disease in, in you know family practice or internal medicine practice Pet or peeve. even pediatric. Pet peeve here, getting back on my soapbox, antibiotic use. Absolutely. Oh, I, I was trained, and I, I don't know if that's changed since, that someone needs to be treated with decongestants, antihistamines, increased fluids for at least 10 days prior to going on antibiotics for sinuses because most sinus infections are viral, not bacterial. Comments? Right. Absolutely. Or it could be triggered by allergies and you have secondary swelling and secondary symptoms with congestion, pressure. I agree. Uh, there's way too much overuse of antibiotics. Uh, and when people come to me, they've already been on, you know, z which does nothing and, and uh, other antibiotics. And typically, if they can tolerate uh, decongestants, and I don't use decongestants a lot, especially with my older patients that are older ma male patients who may end up with problems with uh, prostate issues and hypertension. 
but uh, typically steroid nasal sprays and his and i think after 10 to 14 days if they're not getting better then i would consider doing something with antibiotics but again and with my specialty, I can spray a patient down. I can take a look actually up their nose and and look and see if they truly have an infection and even culture them and do, you know, antibiotic-specific treatment for that. Soup versus paste. Do we want to liquefy it or do we want to use antihistamines to dry it up? You want to liquefy it. So no paste. We want soup. We want soup. And we're talking about we're talking about snot. Snot's <laughs> so, good, right? Yeah. Snot's so, you know, great. The other thing, too, that I notice, and, and I think that this is one of the reasons why it's hard for the family doctors, is that people come in and they say that they're having their standard sinus infection. They want treatment. But you don't treat people for, you know, five, seven days with antibiotics for sinus infections, right? They get no. treated for a long time. Minimum of 14 days. Yeah. So, I mean, for a patient to come in and get treated by me for 14, 20 days with antibiotics, that's a big that's a big move. So I'm sorry to all my patients who I sometimes send to ENT because I think you need to be there. We need to make sure these are true bacterial infections. Absolutely. And when would you suggest to a patient who is getting better or who has a chronic sinusitis the need for a CAT scan? Typically, I will see patients in initial evaluation. You guys would send patients to me, and I will evaluate it. By that time, they have been treated almost maximally medically. And so when patients come to me, I explain to them, your doctor has sent you to the specialist. And for a majority of those patients, I'll say the workup and evaluation has two limbs to it, allergy and anatomy. And if they have any type of allergy symptoms, we'll do allergy testing in our office. But... Typically, I'll order CAT scans on a majority of the patients who are coming to see me because they've already been referred and have had multiple courses of antibiotics, and they really want to get to the bottom of it. So we have a CAT scanner in our office, and we can do that. Les Burgash, South Coast ENT, if you just called in, what do you like to do best in your practice? What's your favorite thing to do during the day before you go home? <laughs> <laughs> And before I get my charts done. Right. Yeah. I, li I like interacting with the patients. It's everything else, you know, you know, you guys know the practice of medicine has become so burdensome, but the doctor-patient relationship is still the most important thing. And that's them. why I actually invited you on the show because your patients love you. And that's what I like about you. Thank you. You are affable and available. Thank and, you. And a lot of doctors aren't. I can call Dr. Burgash for my patients. And he'll go, send them over. It's so rare to find that in another doctor. So um, on the topic of, you know, your sinuses, you have um, uh, snot, for lack of a better word, dripping down the back of your throat, hitting those tonsils. In the olden days, everybody got their tonsils removed. And now we're not seeing that so much. I got my tonsils taken out because my older brother had tonsillitis. Right, So right. I, I understand that. So what happened? Why did we stop doing that? Who needs their tonsils out these days? Well, there are certain criteria that we use for taking tonsils out. And there, there, there are several of them. In terms of acute tonsillitis infections that have been documented with antibiotics, it's seven infections in one year, five infections in two consecutive years, or three infections in three consecutive years. Or do the size of the tonsils interfere with eating or breathing? Sleep apnea, another kind of subset of those, especially in kids. Um, or is the severity of their tonsillitis infections, is the comorbidity of that worse than 
the surgery itself, meaning lost work days, lost production, lost school days. You know, eventually if you get your tonsils out, you, you go through a fair amount of pain for the first, you know, week to 10 days and then it's over. And, and that's, that's what it is. Kids can get through everything. Adults that have their tonsils out tell oh, me it's yeah. worse than yeah. having a kidney stone. For sure. I, I tell some of my adult, and males are worse than females, I have to admit. <laughs> um, I tell my male patients that, uh, you know, the first post-op visit, if you want to get your tonsils out and you're 35 years old, we're going to set up a metal detector before you come in because <laughs> you're, you, I, I don't care how you take tonsils out, it's going to be painful, in the first, in, especially in the fifth to ninth post-operative day. Frank, you had your tonsils out as an adult. I see you. I was 16 and uh, not quite an adult, but it was not a pleasant experience. I tell my patients, yeah. you're going to, you're going to cry. It's going to hurt. Yeah. You really have to decide that this is the most, this is important for you because my job is easy. You know, I'm taking it out, but the family members, I always go out to the family members and say, tag, you're it because yeah. that's going to, the hardest part is in the post-operative period. Right. Now, because me and Dr. Talton are pro-vaccine. We like to vaccinate according to the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Family Physicians, and that whole alphabet soup of organizations that recommend vaccines. Because of the streptococcal vaccines, particularly the Prevnar vaccine, the PCV 13 vaccine given in kids, four separate doses, I believe. Are you seeing less tonsillitis? I think we are. I don't see, we have a nurse practitioner that sees most of our kids, but I think the vaccine has decreased the frequency of tonsillitis in, in children. So I believe so. And as long as you follow the indications, we have strict indications that we proceed with. And I would imagine, though, that most tonsillitis, just like most sinus infections, are viral and not bacterial and do not require antibiotics. That is correct. Okay. So speaking of kids, uh, another common procedure I think uh, people associate with otolaryngology would be the ear tubes, the yes. pressure equalizer tubes. Mm -hmm. um, who needs them? These are typically kids who have failed recurrent antibiotic treatment for acute otitis media, or they have had fluid behind their ears without infection for three months or greater. Especially in those kids that are in the speech and language acquisition phases, there have been studies that have shown that if these kids have chronic serous effusion or chronic mucoid effusion, meaning thick fluid or thin fluid behind the eardrum, that they will have decreased ability to catch up with their peers in terms of speech and language acquisitions. So those kids we really want to get on sooner rather than later. Now, do you ever do tympanostomy or holes in the ears in adults? I do. We do. And we typically can do that in the office depending on the circumstance. There are a lot of folks who have chronic ear problems, even back in the old days when we did mastoidectomies, but there are patients, people who have been on planes, and they develop, you know, eustachian tube dysfunction and have fluid behind their ears. Adults typically cannot wait three months. They cannot <laughs> tolerate the, the, wow. the fact that they can't hear. So wow. I usually would do that in an adult after a month. And we can do that in the office. We just numb their eardrum up with some phenol and make an incision. Um, you know, it's all done under the microscope, obviously. Painful? 
the fien- touching the eardrum with the phenol is painful. And I just have patients just take a deep breath in and I say, I don't care if you scream or cry, just hold still. But a majority of people have no issue whatsoever. So I'm flying on an airplane and my ears always get blocked. I feel like when the pilot announces we're landing, I have to go, what did he say? <laughs> but I, I think that's common. Let's talk a little bit about what, what causes that. What happens is on descent, you get a buildup of negative pressure in your eustachian tubes. And the eustachian tubes are structures that equalize pressure between the ear and the outside. So on descent, you're getting a squeeze from the eustachian tube. And people can get a lot of pain, pressure, fullness. Some people actually get fluid behind the eardrum because the pressure is so great that the fluid in the cells that line the middle ear are, is actually taken out of those cells and put into the middle ear. And this is more common in people that have allergies and other sinus, sinus problems problem because the tubes are actually located yeah. and drain into the back of the throat. Right? Correct. So Correct. All well, those, in, the, in, the, in the back of the nose into an area called the nasopharynx. So all those structures are kind of connected. Correct. So if you every, have, every hole in the body is connected except <laughs> your eyes. And there we go. You never want to connect your eyes with the rest of the holes in your, in your head. Right. So, Especially so, during sinus surgery. That is not good form. Okay. Uh, that's That's... Halloween's coming up, guys. <laughs> it's, it's those fall holidays, and this is getting really spooky. But so now the patient has landed, and they're let's say they're in Vegas, they're in LA, they're in San Fran. They can't hear. What do they do? The first thing that I would do is tell them to get steroid nasal spray over the counter, um, and they should do that twice a day. Chew gum, pop your ears. If patients can take decongestants, that's great. But a lot of times, it's better to be uh, proactive rather than reactive. And I actually give a lot of my patients out something called a flight menu. And so if they can tolerate decongestants, what I say to them is nasal spray the night before with a Sudafed, the morning of the flight, nasal spray and Sudafed, one hour before final descent, nasal spray, chew gum the whole time. Now, just for everybody listening, you're talking about Afrin, the bad nasal spray, the one that we're not supposed to use all the time. Correct. Which is different than fluticasone or Correct. a steroid nasal spray Correct. like Flonase, which we do use all the time. Correct. Aha. Um, you should only really use nasal sprays like Afrin or Oxymetazolam up to three days. Uh, the steroid nasal spray, because they have a rebound effect. Meaning? Meaning you'll spray it, you feel great, you're less congested. 12 hours later, you get a rebound swelling in your nose. You're so just then as you start stuffy using, as ever. Right. So then pe- people can actually get addicted to over-the-counter nasal sprays like Afrin's called rhinitis medicamentosum, which can be a difficult problem to treat. So it's that three-day rule on that. No more than three no days. No more than three days. No more than three days for Afrin nasal spray or other types of those nasal sprays. But the steroid nasal sprays, you don't get a rebound. You can't get addicted to them. Uh, there's only a local response. You can get a little bit of irritation in your nose, but I counsel my patients on how to use a nasal spray and the amount of nosebleeds or irritation has declined considerably. Anybody want to ask Dr. Burgash a question, you can call us live right here at WSTU. That's 772-220-WSTU, 772-220-9788. Les Burgash, we're going to take a commercial break. We'll be back in a minute. Wonderful. Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU.
Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Welcome back. You are listening to Paradox, and our show today is called Boogers and Snot and All That's Not. And I want to remind you all that the chief namer of shows is not me. (laughs) It's Dr. Ira. And we are here today with Dr. Les Burgash, and he is telling us all about what he does, which is fascinating and very relatable for most people. And I want to ask him now about nosebleeds, because this is something that most of us have experienced or at least been in the presence of other people experiencing it. And it's so scary. How frequent are nosebleeds? What kind, what, how many patients experience nosebleeds and when is it ever a big deal? Nosebleeds are the bane of the otolaryngologist existence um, because they can be very scary. A majority of nosebleeds, 95% of all nosebleeds occur in the front of the nose called the anterior portion of the nose, typically along a structure called the septum. And the septum is a wall that separates the left side from the right side. And there are multiple different capillaries and little blood vessels along that septum. So people who uh, get nosebleeds typically may have a deviated septum or a crooked septum. And if the air is cold, especially this time of year, the amount of nosebleeds are going to start to increase. Um, that, That lining or mucosa can dry out and those little blood vessels can start bleeding. Typically, nosebleeds can be taken care of with just pressure for 10 to 15 minutes. And a lot of people won't do that. They'll, they'll hold a little pressure and they won't hold it for that length of time, or they'll put ice on the back of their neck or something that their grandmother or their mother told them to do. But typically if you can hold pressure for 10 to 15 minutes, it should stop 90 to 95% of all nosebleeds. You know, the kinds of nosebleeds that I see are those patients that you guys take care of who are on blood thinners and get into nosebleeds and they can be scary because these people can bleed. And there are many different ways that you can control nosebleeds. There are anterior nosebleeds, which we talked about before. Posterior nosebleeds are a whole separate issue, which are really and that's, good. And that's because you're not able to put pressure on the posterior uh, space, right? Correct. I mean, if, if people have bad anterior nosebleeds and they go to the emergency room, they'll typically get some type of packing in, whether it's a, what's called a rhino rocket or some people put uh, regular packing in that will stay in for three days. Typically they'll follow up with us. We'll remove the pack and cauterize the little area. People come in with small nosebleeds and we can see a little bleeder. And what I'll do is I'll take a look with my scope and we actually have a chemical cautery called silver nitrate and we'll touch that area. And then we have, you know, post uh, we call them nosebleed instruction sheets that we give to our patients with saltwater nasal spray and ointment and those kinds of things. Uh, but posterior nosebleeds can be, thank, thank, thank goodness I haven't had a posterior nosebleed in a long time. They can be life-threatening. And those need to be in the hospital, sometimes taken to the operating room. Back in the old days, we would actually tie off arteries um, so they can be very, very scary for everybody involved. How does the patient know? How do our callers and our listeners out there know, gee, should I apply pressure? Should I call my family doctor? Should I go to the emergency room? What are 
your signals where you would consider a nosebleed worthy of going to the hospital? If you cannot stop a nosebleed after 10 minutes of pressure, you need to go to the hospital. And with my patients, what I'll tell them also is if you get a little piece of cotton, and we're going to go back to that afrin again, and you soak it with afrin, put it in your nose on the side that's bleeding, and you lean forward about 10 degrees pressure for 10 to 15 minutes, that should stop them. If it doesn't stop them, you need to go to the emergency room or call the office. Yeah. And so my suggestion is anybody that's putting pressure on anything, set a timer because 10 minutes is a long time to wait for something to stop bleeding. And if you're leaning forward and the blood is typically running down the back of your throat, that means you may have a posterior nosebleed. And if you're having a lot of blood running down the back of your throat, don't wait the 10 minutes, get in your car and go to the emergency right, room. Right. You could choke on that. You, you, you could drown in your own blood. You could die. I mean, I've had some pretty bad nosebleeds that when the ear, nose, and throat doctor gets nervous about a nosebleed, you know it's a big deal. So do you think that now that we have newer anticoagulant medications, so, you know, the Plavixes, Hasn't the made a difference. Okay. Has not made a difference. So it's basically, you know, you're either prone to it or you're not. And Correct. certainly if you're on an anticoagulant of any kind, aspirin, Coumadin, any of the newer ones, you're at a greater risk. That is correct. So Coumadin, I, I can give vitamin K, but some of the newer, more novel anticoagulants, uh, for instance, uh, Pradaxa, uh, anything like that, I there's nothing I can give that's going to stop that nosebleed. Fresh frozen plasma, perhaps. I mean, that's when it gets really, really serious. ICU material. Correct. You would have to actually take them to surgery. Correct. So I would do my part and you guys would have to do your part in how, terms of coagulating them. How, how often do you see that? Really bad nosebleeds? Really bad nosebleeds. Maybe three, four times a year. Okay. Thank goodness. So not not too much. Not too bad. I mean, and, you and, see a lot of nosebleeds, anterior nosebleeds in the office. I probably see in our practice as a whole, we're probably seeing 10, 12 nosebleeds a week, I would I would guess. And you're seeing 30, 40 people a day usually? Usually. Usually. Yes. So when and you're closer seeing, to the 40. Closer to the 40. So it's a small percentage, but I'm sure that's very frightening. Yes. And in little kids, typically they get nosebleeds because they pick their nose. Interestingly, they usually get them yeah. at night. I have they a, get them I have a nose bleeder, nose. and the first thing she says is, I'm not picking every time. I'm like, it's okay. They're, they're picking their nose. Is there any it's way to okay. prevent that? Everybody does that. Like you just mentioned that when the air gets drier, that it's you, we see it more often. So should they be lubricating the nose? Humidifier in the room. Okay. Salt water nasal spray a couple times a day. Mm -hmm. um, and that should that should help it. So pick your friends, pick your vegetables, don't pick your nose. I get paid to do it. <laughs> you get paid to do that. I, I love that. I used to tell that to my Save daughter when she was little. Don't do that yourself. I get paid to do that. While we're on the topic of ENT emergencies, and here's something you don't see a lot of anymore, but it's life-threatening. Let's talk about airways, and let's talk about epiglottitis. Mm. Tell, tell the listeners how you deal with that and what it is. Epiglottitis is an acute bacterial infection of a structure called the epiglottis. And the epiglottis is in the back of the tongue. And it is a structure that actually falls onto the area above the vocal cords where the breathing tube is to protect that when you swallow so that you're not aspirating or you're getting liquids or solids into your lungs. What happens in acute epiglottitis is the epiglottis gets so swollen that it blocks the airway. That is a very rare uh, condition. Much more scary in kids than in adults because their airways are so much smaller. 
So if an epiglottitis comes in in a kid, that typically they will call and we have to rush the emergency room. And typically it's a combination of the anesthesiologist and the ear, nose, and throat doctor managing that. Adults, you can get by without hopefully intubating them or trachea them, which means making an incision in their neck and providing an airway by high dose steroids and antibiotics and putting them in the unit and, and watching them. And I remember as a resident with adult epiglottitis, I would have to sit there for hours and watch these people so that they wouldn't lose their airway. Because if they lose their airway, then you're doing an emergency tracheotomy. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. Always bacterial? Those that are severe, yes. There can be viral epiglottitis, but the severe ones are typically bacterial. Usually strep? Usually H-flu. Usually H-flu. So having Prevnar on board in younger kids doesn't really prevent epiglottitis. Correct. But again, it's very rare now. It's very rare. And this, and I've only seen a few cases. And it, when you see one case, you remember it forever. These are the kids that can't speak. They look scared as can be. They're sitting forward and they're drooling. Is that the usual presentation? Abs absolutely. Uh, that reminds me of a story. I was first dating my wife, and Ira knows her, and uh, she's not medically inclined. And the first I was on call and we were, I was living in Fort Pierce. I got a call from the emergency room. It's a patient with epiglottitis. I said to Michelle, I got to go. I got to go right now. Goodbye. And boom, you're out the door because it is scary. And, and they present exactly the way I ever said. They're leaning forward and they are drooling and they can't talk. So since we're in the area of the throat, I want to ask you another throat question. Sure. Um, hoarseness. So, yes. uh, horse, see a lot of that. See a lot of hoarseness. And so, you know, from a family doctor perspective, there's some hoarseness that's kind of normal and expected from allergies. And then there's this other problem, head and neck cancer, that can cause some hoarseness. And how do I know the difference? So as a patient with hoarseness, what 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 should they know? When should they say, as ah, just the way I talk? And when should they say, hmm, maybe I should have somebody look down here with scope? If it's going on for about six to eight weeks and you guys have treated them for either sinus or a lot of times it'll be acid reflux that can cause the hoarseness, they should see somebody like me. And we have special scopes that we can take a look from the nose down to the level of the vocal cords. Those patients who have a history, strong history of smoking and alcohol use will usually present with hoarseness that has been going on for some time and ear pain. And there's a lot of things in the head and neck that can cause ear pain or referred otalgia. A lot of people come to the practice with ear pain. So the first thing that comes into my mind is I have to go through a differential diagnosis of why this person could have ear pain. So typically it's, it's you know, uh, hoarseness that is not painful and referred ear pain. Those people really get your ears perked up that you really need to take a look at this person. And this is, and when you say that you have to look in with the scope, this isn't what I do where I shine a light in the no. back of the throat. This is a scope up through the it's nose. It's a flexible scope yeah. up through the nose. And it's very well tolerated. We spray, we, we spray patients with a combination of Afrin and lidocaine um, and let them sit and, and they tolerate it very well. Yeah. We see so many patients with such a strong gag reflex and you learn early in medical school Never put something in someone's throat and stand directly in front of them. 
<laughs> dry, dry cleaners make out like bandits on that one. Especially people, uh, when I was first started my ENT residency, one of the rites of passages, you stood in front of somebody who had a trach and they coughed all over you. And the senior, you know, the senior residents would say, oh, you're not supposed to stand directly in front of a patient with a trach. So, but they wait, they wait until you, you they wait. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They wait until So afterwards. in terms, in terms of doctors who experience gross stuff, you're like at the top of the list. You are the top. A lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people don't like. Yeah, OBGYN and ENT. I would say you have strong I, stomachs, right? I would rather manage ENT than OBGYN, trust me. Well, if you watch so. enough Seinfeld episodes, it would be the proctologist. <laughs> okay. Really, I tell patients, no one takes their clothes off in my office, and I only go from the shoulders to the top of the ears. So. There we go. Dr. Les Burgash, dizziness and vertigo. Another big... Another big topic, you know, dizziness. And I said to my patients, dizziness or unsteadiness, everybody says I have vertigo. Well, you probably don't have vertigo, but dizziness and unsteadiness can be blood pressure, blood sugar, thyroid, heart, blood vessels, brain, medication, arthritis in your ear. I cannot tell you the number of times I've said that. Yeah, it that. sounds like you've rehearsed that. I have a said few that times many a day. times. So <laughs> a lot of times patients will come in and they'll be off balance. And the first things I ask them is, have you seen your regular medical doctor? Because, you know, what's going on with your medications? What's going on with your blood pressure? What's going on with your blood sugar? Um, so what's going on with your heart? Um, and if all those check out, then I do a full ENT exam. I do a neuro exam, uh, head and neck neuro exam, cranial nerve exam. You guys understand what that is. Um, and then I typically, depending on what their symptoms are, uh, I'll schedule them for balance testing. And we have a full balance lab in our office where we can not only test, th there's two parts to the inner ear, the hearing part and the balance part. And some of the hearing, some hearing issues or hearing part can cause dizziness. The majority is related to the balance part, which is called the semicircular canals. Not between the C23 and C24. No. Not those canals. No. Okay. No. No. Bad joke, um, no, bad joke, no. and a laugh track. <laughs> Frank is slipping. <laughs> and so we will evaluate them, do the balance testing, um, and then once those results, uh, then we can come up with some sort of plan or formulation. A lot of patients will do very well with physical therapy or what we call vestibular rehabilitation. Um, and they'll have gait training, uh, especially in elderly patients. And you guys know that, that uh, they have a lot of problems with their balance and, and their inner gyro, you know, their, their gyroscope and, and the way they interact with their environment and how they walk. So we're able to, to send these people out to physical therapy for that. So the patients that I worry about with vertigo are those who come in and say for the last few days, or I woke up and the room is spinning or I feel like I'm spinning in the room. And if you've never had that sensation, but you've been to Disney world, imagine yourself riding the teacups and you can't get off. And when they do that, and when they come see someone like myself or Dr. Leanne, we'll do a maneuver on them in the office called the Dick's hall pike or, or Epley maneuver. Correct. But, to diagnose it, we'll do the Dick's Hall Pipe, where I'll generally lie the patient back with their head off the edge of the table, and I'll look and turn their head slightly, about 45 degrees, and I'll look for rapid eye movement to one side or the other. If they have that, then I usually put them on medication, and if it's bad, I send them to you guys for Epley maneuvering. Correct. Um, 
those that is one particular subset of dizziness called benign positional vertigo and that's where there are crystals within the inner ear balance portion and we don't know why they get out of whack but they get out of whack and typically that dizziness will be true vertigo or spinning usually with head movements either looking up looking down looking from one side to the other and those patients can have their crystals put back into position with the Epley maneuver. We do that in the office. Our audiologist does that. And I've had patients who have had this kind of dizziness for two or three years, and they've been treated with meclizine or anti-dizzy medication. It really doesn't help them. It makes them drowsy and dries them out. And we'll do the Epley maneuver, and their life will change. And that's that's very gratifying. So speaking of elderly interacting with the environment and that, you know, our senses are necessary for us to interpret where we are standing in space. Uh, hearing is hearing is a big deal and a big business for you. Yes. And so we see hearing aid stores on the corner. Yes. Why should someone see an ENT versus going to an independent audiologist or hearing aid store with an audiologist? Because their hearing loss may be something other than what a hearing aid dealer in a strip mall is trying to sell them. And, and I'm not trying to diss them. Everybody has their thing. But I think you need to be evaluated by somebody like me uh, to make sure that it is what, what type of hearing loss it is. There right, because it could be the fluid that we talked about before. could be the fluid. There are different types of hearing loss. If people have unequal hearing losses, could be something called a, an acoustic neuroma, which is a benign tumor of the inner ear that can cause hearing loss. So there's a large differential diagnosis of hearing loss, and you really need to have somebody who knows what they're talking about to work through the differential diagnosis and you guys know, you know, diagnosis is 90% history. You have to ask the right questions. And one, once we get that done, then our audiologists do hearing tests. There are other specific types of hearing tests also that we can rule out other uh, issues. And then we can make recommendations for amplification or hearing aids. So um, I always tell people that, you know, I guess because of the business that I'm in, I, I observe people listening and can already tell when they have a problem with hearing loss because of the way that they hold their head. But or, I think or they can watch you read, they'll read your lips. You'll read see them reading lips, your yeah. lips. Yeah. So for the average um, wife, we all think our husbands have hearing loss by about the first year of marriage. When do people typically experience true hearing loss? That's a tough question. It depends on family history. Mm -hmm. It depends on genetics. It depends on noise exposure. Mm -hmm. So there are multiple different reasons in regards to age. So in their... I mean, depending on the person, it but it can be depending on the person. Um, do we see hearing loss in their forties? I have seen patients with hearing loss in their forties, especially with, you know, people working construction okay. or people with a family history of hearing loss. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Explain to me the difference between actual high frequency hearing loss and word discrimination. That's a tough one, huh? Because our, our audience wants to know about that. There, there's two parts to hearing. Hearing the sounds and understanding the words. So when we typically do a hearing test, we'll do something called pure tone testing where, and you guys have been in the booth, they'll give you, you know, you'll hear the sound, you raise your hand when you hear it. And then our audiologist will provide a word list and uh, people will be able to, or not be able to repeat that 10 word list. So there are patients who have high-frequency high hearing loss with excellent word discrimination, which is the best of all worlds in terms of hearing aids. 
there are patients who will have high frequency hearing loss and will have poor word discrimination. And those are patients who the only benefit they will have is from amplification or hearing aids, but they don't do as well as those patients who have word discrimination. So it's a different part of the really the audiometric tract that leads into the brain. And so it's a different aspect of, of the brain and hearing. People like us here at a radio station, you and I love rock music. And I understand you're a big Who fan. I'm, how, how many times have you seen the Who? I just saw him last Friday. <laughs> I've seen him about 30 times. That's amazing. And and, and I, I always tell people, I shouldn't be saying this, but I always wear noise protection when I go to concerts, except when I go to the Who, because they say, if I'm going to lose my hearing, it's going to be because of the Who. So far, so good. Well, that, that's, where, <laughs> that's where I'm going with this. Do people in our age group, because we grew up with loud rock music, have an increased uh, frequency or incidence of hearing loss? Yes. And... And kids now who are wearing headphones all the time that are listening to music with their earbuds, there is a growing, there is an increase now in the incidence of hearing loss at an earlier age because of the loud noise exposure that these kids and young adults are doing. Right. Well, they're pumping this noise right directly into their ears. Correct. It's, it's not being filtered Correct. out. Correct. There's no filter. Yeah. So, Dr. Burgash. I can buy a flat screen television, a 70 inch television for under $2,000. Why are hearing aids $6,000? I don't think there's $6,000 at my office, but the technology now is so advanced. There are digital hearing aids. Before all there was, was these kind of hearing aids that amplified everything. Now there are digital hearing aids that you can actually amplify and tune the particular frequencies that you have the deficiency in. And they can be, the, and that with that comes expense. Now people, they, they don't like them because they're expensive, but they also don't like them for a lot of other reasons, Cosmetic right? reasons. Cosmetic reasons. Are they uncomfortable? Some people can't tolerate them. I don't think they're that uncomfortable. I, I've only put them in my ears just so I know what it feels like with patients mm -hmm. and the technology. Now it's really very thin wires, very small uh, earbuds that you can put in your ears. It's not these big things anymore. Mm -hmm. And you really need to get a hearing aid that is appropriate for your degree of hearing loss. You know, a lot of patients say, I don't want anyone to see them. I want them in my canal or I don't want that thing behind my ear. But you really have to, and, and this is another thing, you know, either when you go to a hearing aid dealer or our audiologists have masters and, and degrees, you really have to choose the appropriate hearing aid for the degree of hearing loss and the type of hearing loss you have. So yeah. speaking of things behind the ear, what's a cochlear implant and who's getting those? A cochlear implant is a device that is attached onto the skull and directed right into the inner ear and can pick up the frequencies. I, I, I trained too late. I, they didn't have cochlear implants in my time. So that's not something that I, we do. We refer those out. It's typically in those patients who have significant hearing loss, but have had an, a, an ability to hear before and therefore understand words. So it's not the cure for all deafness. Then, no, it is that not. That we present it. No, it's not. As. It's an adjuvant okay. to it. Now you have three offices, correct? Correct. If a patient 
wanted to see you in one of your offices, how do they get in touch with your office? Our main office is 772-398-9911, and they can call that main office and can be directed to, uh, you know, we have people who are working for us who are making those appointments, and they can make the appointments directly through there. Now, you have an office in Port St. Lucie and in Okeechobee and a third office. Where is that? In Fort Pierce. So we kind of cover the Treasure Coast, myself and my great partner, Dr. John Lanza. Shout out to him. Yeah, John's also a good friend of ours. We've known John for years. Yep. Thyroid nodules. I want to talk about those for just a little bit because my patients think if they have a thyroid nodule, they need to see an endocrinologist, but they really should be seeing someone like you to get that biopsy. A lot of endocrinologists now have ultrasounds in their office and do fine needle aspirations. So it depends on who you're comfortable with and what other medical issues that you have. Um, a lot of patients will see endoc- uh, otolaryngologists uh, for thyroid nodules and get an ultrasound and have something called a fine needle aspiration in the office where we numb up the skin and use a small needle and put it right into the nodule using the ultrasound as a guidance uh, and get cells out and tissue and send it to pathologists that uh, can look at it and analyze it. Because patients are getting so many CT scans and there's so much radiation exposure these days, does that increase the incidence of thyroid nodules? I don't think so. I think we're increasing the number of thyroid nodules because we're doing more and more ultrasounds of thyroids. And I think that's why all these nodules are being picked up because we have the technology, we're using the technology what we as doctors call incidental lomas. Many. We of just them. find them by accident. And the vast majority of thyroid nodules are non cancerous, correct? 95% are non cancerous. When should a patient worry about a thyroid nodule? T- typically, if, uh, the, if it's a solid nodule, single nodule, one centimeter or greater. Les Burgash, I can see why your patients love you. We love you. Thank you so much. You've been so educational and entertaining. Thank you for having me. You've listened to Paradox. We can't wait to be back with you next week.